flip or tap your way on over to the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, We're going to be in uh, chapter 11, and you'll notice that if you're following along on thegatewaychurch.com, that the teaching text is properly 11, 25 to 26, but really we're going to be working our way through 20 to 30, because uh, 25 to 26 is sandwiched in between these other movements that I think help us understand it. And so... And to kind of ease us into this, uh, I just want to share the sermon title. This is not like a normal practice where I'm like, here's the sermon title, and this is where it's at. But last week, uh, the sermon title was from John 19, 28, and it was a little bit like on the nose. We're, we're going through this series called Teach Us to Pray, where we're like Jesus' disciples asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And then we're turning to Jesus' prayers and seeing what does it look like for us to embody those or to receive the wisdom of Jesus' prayers. And so last week, our sermon title was I Thirst. See, a bit on the nose. It's literally Jesus' prayer. And this week, it's similar, but I thought it needed a little bit more panache. So um, the sermon title for this week, you already see it, don't you? Apocalypse Now? Come on. Come on. Uh, And maybe that feels a little bit sensational, maybe it is a a little bit sensational, but this is actually drawn right from Jesus' prayer in our our teaching today in uh, in Matthew 11. And so I'm just going to start in verse 25, and uh, we're going to read through Jesus' prayer, and then as we work our way into the teaching, we're going to go back to verse 20. How's that sound? Good? Okay. So... um, Matthew chapter 11, if you can, I know that you're all comfy and stuff, but I think there's something about honoring God's word with our body. So if you would stand with me for the reading of scripture. Um, this is just to say that uh, what, we're, what we're reading is, these are not just Jesus's words, but these are the words that lead us into life and truth. And so Matthew 11, picking up in verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And this is the the word of the Lord, and you can have a seat. So to start, I want us to kind of lean into this one word, revealed. And this one word revealed, it acts, I I think, like this linchpin in Jesus's prayer that we're considering today in those verses that we just read. And revealed is the English translation of the Greek word apocalypse, which sermon title, Apocalypse Now. And I think that that word apocalypse, it still resonates. Like there's this idea of something dramatic and sudden and and earth shaking that's going to go down. Uh, in other words, Jesus is here in this prayer, he's, he's praising the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that something earth-shattering and dramatic is like on the scene, it's breaking out. And it's this, that the little children have come to see and perceive that was, what was once hidden is now clear with him. Like that's the thing that's been revealed. And so just hear this passage once more with, uh, with the title of this teaching in mind. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and apocalypsed them to the little children. Yes, for this is what you were pleased to do. And I, I don't know about you, but apocalypse just gets my attention. And this is where it gets kind of nerdy and I, I won't chase that too far. But does it get your attention? If somebody just was, starts talking about the apocalypse, you go... Oh, no, not these guys again. Or maybe something like that. Um, See, I I think the reason that the apocalypse gets our attention is for those very reasons, the thoughts that creep up in your mind that you're like, oh, gosh, 
it's, it's the disaster crew. Like, what's going on here? The world is going to end. Well, uh, that's just a far cry from what the biblical authors are talking about when they're talking about the apocalypse. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to see the contrast, here's this dictionary.com. This is the word apocalypse, according to dictionary.com. It's the complete and final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. Not true. Or an event involving destruction or damage or an awesome on an awesome or catastrophic scale. You see, in the biblical imagination, which is just a way to say the whole Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show the true nature of the world from a divine perspective. It's like you're standing on this side here and then you pull it back and all of a sudden you see Jordan walking through. Like the true <laughs> nature of the world is revealed for, but from a divine perspective. You see, we, we may think when we hear apocalypse, the end of the world, but what's really going down is this is the scripture's invitation to see the world as it actually could be. And so I'm just gonna ask that you do your best to like hold that tension of where be, maybe where you go when you hear apocalypse and to actually give some space for what the scriptures are inviting us to see when they talk about the apocalypse. And I think in one, you could actually think of the whole book of gospel, the whole gospel according to Matthew, uh, as an apocalypse, this revealing of who Jesus truly is. He's the better than Moses character. He's the, the, the faithful one of Israel through whom God is going to restore and renew all things. It's this thing that's being revealed, apocalypsed to the little children. There's this idea here of, of something that is hidden and something that is revealed. It's hidden from the wise and the learned. And this is, this is where the rabbit trails come up. Because if you've grown up in certain theological contexts where there's lots of conversations about who is elect, who's in, who's out, who's chosen, who's not, then these are sometimes the, the words of Jesus that are turned to to say, see, these are the ones in the divine prerogative, basically the choice of the divine that are in and these are the ones that are out. And it's a mystery, yet we receive it as those who are in. I don't quite know if that's really what's going on here, I could be wrong. I'm just not sure that that's actually what's going on. So we're not necessarily gonna unpack the hidden things, but what we are gonna do is see what is revealed and where that leads. And if you have uh, theological questions, just come afterwards and ask Josh. Um, <laughs> no, uh, we, I would love to talk about those things. Uh, but, but I think for us to get at what is actually going on here and why Jesus is talking about the apocalypse, because that's the word that's used here, we need to go back uh, to the start of this. So Matthew eleven twenty. if you're there, you can just look down. And we're going to read through uh, verse 24. So Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns. It's going to get good. The towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, hold on a moment there. Tyre and Sidon would be well known as kind of Gentile cities. They would be places that were like opposed to the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they would be seen as unclean and unfit for a Jew to be. And it's as though if Jesus had done in Tyre and Sidon, these places that are called places of wickedness, what he had done in Bethesda, in Chorazin, they would have turned long ago. Pick up in verse 23. 
and then this place Capernaum where Jesus' like main base of ministry is in the northern part of Israel, the Galilee. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So a, a bit heavy, yes or no? Yeah, this is like the stuff you love to talk to your friends who are kind of okay with Jesus, but not okay with the Bible, right? These are the passages you love to go to. Um, this is certainly not the passage that you see cross-stitched on your grandma's pillow. Like, this is, this is not the one that's there. And see, I, if I'm honest, like, this is not how I spend a lot of time imagining Jesus. Generally, when I think about Jesus, and maybe this maps onto your experience, I, I picture, like, the kingdom announcing Jesus, the one who's, like, offering healing for the broken and the wounded and the sick and, and offering, like, just resurrection power for the dead. Like, that's the Jesus, the, the kingdom announcing Jesus. Or maybe it's the compassionate Jesus who sees the hungry crowds and feeds them. Or the reconciling Jesus who takes the furthest people on the outside, like, like the tax collectors collectors and the zealots and draws them into his inner crew. I, or maybe if you're a little bit like me and you kind of like the punk rock, stick it to the man, Jesus. Yeah. Um, well, when he's like tearing down the religious establishment and you're like, yes, this is my guy. Well, all of that stuff is great. But as soon as he starts talking about judgment in Hades, you're like, hold, pump the brakes, bro. Like uh, what, what, what's going on here? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure that the grave or Hades, or maybe you, you have like the, the NASB, you have the word hell. Like, what do we do with this? What do we do with Jesus's words of justice and judgment? And I think for those of us who are like wired up for justice, who see some sort of inequity and we're like, that cannot stand. There's something that wells up within you. Even for those among us who have that inner disposition, Jesus's words can be a little intense. Like, because that's like a person who feels that, but for the divine, for, for the God of the universe to feel that, to have that level, like I don't, that, that yields a little bit discomfort, at least in me. But here we are with these words of judgment. So, so how are we going to receive these? And so that's kind of what's, that's what's ahead of us. This is actually what gets us to this place of considering the apocalypse, and to start, to this answer of a question of, of how do we receive Jesus' words of judgment or justice, I just say, be patient with Jesus. Like, allow him to speak to you from where he's actually speaking. So attend to his context and what's going on. Because if I were to go to McRae Park, you familiar with McRae Park? There's like often that little scenic overlook. People are taking pictures there. It's, it's looking from the south to the north over the, the, the like little panorama cityscape. And if I were to go over there and I were to, to yell this, woe to you, Des Moines, repent, the true insurance. No, if I, I'm just kidding. Like the true, I was going to make a joke about insurance in principle, but I'm not going there. If I were to talk like that, what would people think? What would people say? This guy's crazy. Yes? Okay. Thank you, Justin. Yes. I'm imagining they would say this or maybe, maybe they'd be a little bit more cynical and they'd go, oh, now that you said it, now that you've said the woe against Des Moines, yes, now I want to turn and follow Jesus. Thank you, man announcing woes. You see, we, 
I think we may hear woes and so we, we, and we skip it because we don't have a category or we push it aside or we judge Jesus' judgment. The thing is, is that Jesus did have a category for this type of speech. In fact, his whole life is saturated in this type of speech. This is the way that prophets speak in the Bible. And so we're going to just chase this rabbit a little bit deeper. I hope the payoff is worth it. It was for me. Uh, so I want us to think about the Hebrew prophets. And if you're a little rusty on your Hebrew prophets, here are the prophets. These are people who speak on God's behalf to call the people of Israel back to God. Oftentimes in our Old Testament, there's this picture of, of the divine Yahweh joined together with the people of Israel as a husband is to a bride. There's this idea of covenant, of union, of fidelity. And the prophets would come along to call the people of Israel back to this place of trust and fidelity. And sometimes they would, they would eagerly appeal to the people, turn, turn, like you need to turn because this is heading in a way that I don't think you want to bear. And they wouldn't turn. And so from the place of calling them back, there would be these words that would be a little bit more intense, even contentious. They would call the people of Israel back. And this is not like, a, like an owner of a pug calling after their like stubborn dog, come back, get over here. What do you, no, it's like, this is way more intense than that. This could be contentious. And just to, to hear this, consider the prophet Isaiah, who I think Jesus has in mind. This is Isaiah 5:11. After appealing to the people, hear this. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. He's addressing the leadership. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. Oh, they have harps and lyres at their banquets. They have the best DJs, pipes and timbrels and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the works of their hands. And stop right there for a moment. Um, if you went back to the foundation story, Genesis 1 and 2, the works of God's proverbial hands, it's creation itself. And at the pinnacle of that, you have me and you, you have humanity. And so these people are basically, they're not just tipsy, they're wasted. They have no regard for the people around them. They have no respect for the work of God's hands. 13, therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, and listen to this, death expands its jaws. The word for death there is the word grave. What ends up being translated Hades. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with brawlers and revelers. See, so vibrant and like intense is this scene that the grave is actually consuming people. You can just picture like this is, this is um, heavy stuff right here. And I'm curious, do these words sound at all familiar? Think of our teaching text. Think of what comes right before it. That's a trick question. Yes, these words should sound really familiar. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Like, if you, Capernaum, oh, oh, you will be lifted up to the heavens? There's this idea among some scholars that this little statement was held in this town of Capernaum where Jesus did a bulk of his ministry. And so these miraculous deeds are being performed there. And this... Um, 
basically that the vibe in the town was that they were the best because this is where Jesus would come back. And so this, I don't know if it's like a minority position among scholars, but they're saying that Jesus is intentionally rebuking this town of like, oh, you think you are where it's at because this is where I set it up and you're gonna be exalted to the heavens? No, you will go down into the grave. Like Isaiah, Jesus, Jesus, he's taking up this prophetic mantle He's taking up this prophetic call to call the people of Israel back to who they are. These people who have been set apart as a people of justice and generosity. He's calling them back to their true identity. And when the wonders of God, the, the miracles, go unnoticed or are rejected in this case, Jesus turns to the woes. Jesus moves from the wonders to the woes. And then we find this odd moment here in Jesus' prayer. But before we get there, I just wonder, um, what do you think we would have done? How do you see yourself in this story? In the big story, like, are, are you the one who's on God's side? Or are you the one to whom God is announcing woes over? And I actually think this is part of the design of the scriptures is that we see ourselves into them. That it's not just basic instructions before leaving earth, like the instruction manual for life. I think it's more complex and beautiful and compelling. Like, so, so would the wonder of God compel you to follow after him? What about if there was no signs? It was just the word of Jesus, an invitation to life. Would that draw you in? I don't really know. Um, I, ho- I hope I can. St- I stand here and I think, yeah, probably. I think. Um, but you know, the, the, what's so curious about this is Jesus has been in these towns. He knows these people. These are like the bakers and the builders. You have to imagine he's been walking around. That he's healed some of these people who then reject him. And so they'd be familiar with Jesus and yet there would also be this theme of their life that they'd be familiar with and that would be the op, the, like the oppressing forces of the day, name, namely the Romans. The Romans would have rolled in and they would have taken the land by force, which means there would be pillage, there would be plunder, there would be taxation, there would be theft, there would be violence against bodies. And all of this residue of violence would be lingering in these people. And they, like, as much as Jesus would come and heal, it's like the communities. Notice Jesus does not say to individuals, you will go down to the depths or you'll go. No, he's saying to these towns, like there's this communal residue of rage. Just consider the feelings that would surface and maybe you don't have to search too far. Like if the people closest to you are just verbally berated. What does that activate in you? Would you hear that the person or persons you care about the most have been like yelled at, even just by like a person in a car, maybe you don't see them in your blind spot, they cut them off and they just berate you. Maybe that happened on the way here this morning, hypothetically. My guess is is that in that moment you feel this anger and this rage, maybe even this vengeance, and maybe it is righteous vengeance. I wanna wanna talk about this for a moment and I I, I know, that I said I wouldn't chase too many rabbits, but this one I think is worth it. Um, J.T. Thomas, who I think is worth looking up on uh, YouTube if you want, he's the founder of Civil Righteousness. It's this little coalition of justice in the name of Jesus. And he has this really interesting statement that kind of, it was sticky in my mind. He says, rage always requires a place of expression. 
Rage always requires a place of expression. And you know, as you kind of listen and orient yourself within the work that he does, the community work he does, um, he goes on to unpack what this looks like to transform rage into something like peace. And believe it or not, it's easier to tear things down than it is to build things up. And so wouldn't you know it, it actually takes a long time to transform rage into peace. It's a slow and difficult process. And if you're wondering, what does this have to do with Jesus' prayer? Here, here's the connection. Like, we may not be situated in the first century. We may not have a violent military oppressor bearing down on us. I mean, my goodness, we're gathering here in a co-working space. <laughs> we have a lot of agency to gather in the name of Jesus. But there's something arresting about the way that Jesus confronts these towns because I think it actually, it confronts us. It confronts us specifically in, our, in that residue of rage. Outrage generally or rage at specific circumstances, the violence that has happened to us or that we've done to others. Like there's something that Jesus is confronting us with here. And, and something that helped me get my mind around it were these words of the Apostle Paul as he's trying to pastor a community into unity. And, and hear this, hear this. Paul says this when he's trying to get a people to be united around Jesus. He says, put on your new self. And then in a moment later, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then this is what just was confusing and frustrating and interesting. And do not give the devil a foothold. See, I don't know what you think about you know, the principalities, powers of darkness, supernatural stuff. No, this is just a materialist world and I'm just trying to check out Jesus because I want to feel better about my life. That's great. We're all starting and we're somewhere in our journey with Jesus. Um, as you'll engage in conversations, stuff you'll hear like kind of dripping through these teachings, and I think because they come from the New Testament, is that we're actually not waging war with people. Ours is not a battle between you and me or us and them. There's this cosmic level reality going in. And so Jesus, as he comes in and he breaks into humanity, he's not there to kill his enemies. He's actually there to die for his enemies, to receive their violence into himself because that is the place where then death and violence might actually end. And it's an affront to these cosmic powers. And so when the Apostle Paul says, in your anger, do not sin and do not give the devil a foothold, it's, it's this idea that there's this new thing that's happened with Jesus called your new self. So put that on. By the way, your new self, it's not like the old self. That one is deceitful and it has these disordered desires. It's actually dying. So set the new self in action. That's going towards life. The other one's going toward the grave. And I, I think what's helpful about this and, and how I, I think it actually links back into Jesus' prayer is there's permission here. Like You can be angry. The assumption is you will be angry. It's just what are you going to do with that? Because injustice and violence and bigotry and defacing the image of God on display in every human life, that is worthy of our anger. Like our anger is justified in the face of that. And in your anger, do not add to the injustice and the violence and the bigotry and the defacing of human life. Why? Because there's this place where your anger is animated by the enemy of your soul. Maybe this sounds like really heavy and you're like, Kyle, how did we get to anger from a Jesus praying about praising the Father, Lord of heaven and earth? We'll get there in a moment. 
But I don't want us to miss this because Jesus is confronting these towns and they have this residue of rage against the Romans and Jesus is here inviting us into a new way. Now just imagine that. Imagine the prophet Jesus comes to you in your moment of rage and rather than calling you in your anger to violent revolt against your oppressors, he calls you in your anger to love your enemy. So this won't be hard. Think of your enemy for a moment. Maybe that person's in the room. That would be intense. Um, We're complex people, though. We can carry a lot of stuff on the inside. Uh, now, Now, this is crazy. Jesus calls you not only to love your enemy, he calls you to bless them. How does that feel? My guess is it doesn't feel neutral. (laughs) Maybe even it feels like annoyance or more. And see, Jesus, like the prophet Isaiah, he sees where this thing is heading. He sees where the rage is going, and he wants wants to actually give a place where the rage can die, and we don't have to be consumed by it. And this is the invitation of Jesus. This is what he's offering to these towns, and then in their rejection, This odd thing happens. He praises the Father. So look again at verse 25. At that time, so this is after Jesus pronounces woes. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Notice how he's he's orienting himself. This is the one in whom all things hold together. Lord of the heavens and earth, your space and our space. I praise you because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. And you've apocalypsed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And I don't know how else to make sense of what Jesus is saying here other than to to say that I think something locks in for Jesus in this scene. It's It's as though Jesus is in that moment and it's like, of course the wise and intelligent have pushed these things aside. They've already decided how the God of Israel is gonna work. They've already made up their mind of who gets justice and who does not. They've already decided how God is going to work. And he's either going to work their way or no way at all. By the way, does that sound familiar at all to the conversations you have with people you love who like you desperately want to know Jesus or at least it's like, well, I can't follow a God. Or maybe you've been in a conversation where this happens and it starts to get, it's around theological stuff. It gets a little heated and you say something like, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Anybody? Do that one? Just me. Okay. Well, I end up, thanks, Lene. Uh, th- this moment where we just are like, what in the world? What is going on with this? Well, well Jesus is speaking to it. Of course, the wise and intelligent, they're the ones who should have been able to recognize when the God of Israel was on display, and yet they've already decided what God would look like when he showed up, and it wasn't Jesus who was drawing the outsiders into the middle, who's healing the sick, who's allowing people who are broken and wounded to come to him. No, it would look like a conquering military force to throw off their oppression and establish the kingdom of God. That's what it would look like. It would look like might and strength and power. But Jesus has a different type of power. And I think this prayer starts to display that power. It gives us a look into the economy of heaven where the last are first. This is just a different way of seeing the world. You know, it's really curious um, to see who comes in with Jesus. It's the women and I would, like, all the ladies would be like, yes. It's, the, it's women like Mary of Bethany. 
who come in and are placed in the center. It's no-name fishermen. It's the sick. It's the unimportant. It's the children. By the way, those are the children, the one who come with faith and trust and belief. They see the creator on display in Jesus because this is how the God of Israel works. You go all the way back to the beginning, go to Genesis 12. You don't have to do that right now, but you go to Genesis 12 and what you're gonna see is that God wants to establish a people. You know who he turns to to establish a people who will bless the world? He turns to like an 80-year-old couple who's infertile. He says, you are my people. You're the ones through your bodies I'm going to bring blessing to the world. You know how ridiculous that sounds? Like if you went to your grandma and grandpa and you were like, the Lord has a word for you children. And she'd go, um, menopause. No, not happen. Like this isn't a reality that's going to go down. And yet this is the way the God of Israel works. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses the humble over the proud. He chooses the least to make most of them. See, this prayer, I think is a prayer for us to just wake up. It's a prayer for our apocalypse to have the true nature of reality laid bare so that we might in humility see the wonder of Jesus. And if we're not able to see that and the woes come, we would respond. And you know, that would actually be um, kind of a bummer to end the teaching there, wouldn't it? (laughs) To just end with the woes. But as I said in the beginning, I think that this prayer is actually spilling over into something really beautiful. And so it's not necessarily, let me just take up Jesus's words of praise, but rather to to ask in Jesus's words that I too might see. And what we see in the words that follow are that Jesus is going to say in 27 that everything's been committed into him. And then then he's going to go on because that prayer, I think it spills over into this new reality. And we see this in Matthew 11, 28. Go there with me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus says, all things have been given over to me. No one will come to me except the ones I call. And then he calls a bunch of people. So what is it? Is God already given them all those ones that are going to come, or do you have to be invited? Sure. So the point here is two times Jesus says that there's rest on offer in the name of Jesus. And notice that the rest is not absent of your burdens. It actually is a part of it because the yoke is there to displace the burdens. Just imagine uh, that you're carrying a 50-pound backpack and it's not like a cool backpack where you can like displace all the weight ergonomically. It's a backpack that you wore in like second grade that you're like, it's cool if it's all the way down here at the back of your knees. And so you have 50 pounds in there and you're just like, oh dear Lord. Um, And then Jesus is like, take my yoke upon you. And you're like, Jesus, I'm in second grade. I don't know what a yoke is. And he goes, okay, let me explain it to you. You see this this little bar, it's this lightweight piece of wood. What we're going to do is is, is we're going to just take that backpack off of your shoulders and I have this cart right here. We're just going to put that weight in there. And there's these wheels. Uh, they're going to help to displace all that. And then I'll just put this on your shoulders. Okay? How's that feel? And my guess is that the little second grade you would go, huh, that's nice. See, when Jesus comes to us in the midst of this, he, he's not trying to, like, parachute us out of our troubles or our burdens. He's actually giving us the means to carry them well. He says... My burden is light. And, and to be clear, there's a choice here. 
We can choose the backpack hanging down, like giving us, I don't know, scoliosis or something. Like we can choose that weight. We can choose the burden. And in our stubbornness, we could say, no, this is the way that you carry a backpack. This is how I'm going to carry this load. I've already made up my mind. And this is the paradox of the life with Jesus, is that as you go down, as you receive help, you, you actually go up. It's the upside down kingdom of God. And I think that's the invitation for us that I want us as best as we're able to pick up. And I, I don't know actually what it looks like to pray a prayer of apocalypse, so I thought we could all try it on together. Um, in these next few moments, I'm just gonna invite you to stand. Actually, I'm gonna invite you to stand right now. If you're at home, go ahead and just stand on up wherever you're at, PJs and all. And, uh, and what we're gonna do is, is um, we're just gonna hold some silence together. Maybe that language sounds really weird. It, it is as weird as it sounds, but it's not too uncomfortable. So we're just gonna ask the Spirit of God to search our hearts, to, to search our hearts for those places that we've made up our mind of how God would work, where we've told God, this is what you have to do because it fits my agenda for my life. Um, and perhaps if you're in a place, you would just, um, you, you would say with your bodies, perhaps by putting your hands out in front of you to just say, here it is. Here it is. Would you, would you actually show me, would you reveal to me the things that I could, that I would see, that I would see you, Jesus. And so in these moments, we're, we're going we're gonna to hold some silence, and then we're going to join in the praise of Jesus. We're actually going to sing aloud together, and at the very end, I'm going to come up, and we're going to join together at the very end to say that the thing that was once hidden has been revealed in Jesus, and we're going to take the bread and the cup. How's that sound? Good. So I know we're uh, historically a little, a little bit more reserved in this community, which is totally good. Um, that's great. If you have ever been feeling like you're like, I've been charismatic my whole life and I'm ready, this is the moment. Maybe today? Just, I don't know, feel it out. Um, so we'll, we'll start this just observing some silence and I'll pray and Josh and Christy will continue to, to lead us into this. So come Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just say you are welcome. All, all things on your, uh, in heaven and on earth, they are yours, Lord. And, and, and yet we say, as an act of obedience, you are welcome. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Reveal to us. Help us take the posture of the little children who are willing to receive what you have on offer. Let's worship.